The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Sendo. For more information, visit villagesendo.org. Hello, everybody. Uh, good evening here in New York. Um, so many faces I know, so many faces I have no idea who all of you are, um, which uh, kind of amazes me um, in these not quite post-COVID times, but it's always a surprise to me. Um, my name is Sota. As Echo said, I'm a, student, <clears throat> a senior student here at the Village Zendo. And it's so cool to see the Zendo too, but everyone's really, really tiny. Um, so everything's relative, right? Depends on your perspective. So um, several weeks ago, I gave a Dharma talk where I nervously uh, kind of vomited up the 12 chapters of this book I've been writing for the last year and a half. Shameless Self-Promotion, Notes on Complexity by Neil Thies is now available on IndieBound and Amazon and et cetera, et cetera, for pre-order. I'm not sure that that cover is the actual final cover, but it's looking pretty good. We'll see. Um, and I was, I was pleased and kind of surprised that um, at the response I got to the talk, uh, because I, I, <laughs> in the middle of it, I really wasn't sure what I was doing. Um, but, uh, apparently it came across as relatively coherent and, um, and that resulted in some conversations that made me feel a little bit like what I wanted to do when I signed up for tonight's talk was to expand a little bit on part of that. And as so often happens with Dharma talks, you think you're going to be talking about this and then things in the week and the day prior and send you over to here. Um, and Myogetsu actually was a trigger for, for two things I wanted to talk about that are a little bit of shift from what I originally intended. And one of those, which I'll come back to at the end of the talk, is how she mentioned that this week was our beloved and alas missing um, Dharma teacher and Dharma brother Kaku, whose birthday was this week. And um, it's always nice to be reminded of him. I don't need a special day for that. But, uh, but that put me in mind of, of something else that I wanted to expand on. But the other thing Miyugetsu said to me uh, a couple of months ago, one of the first times I actually got to see her in person since COVID, she was talking to me about how this book was going. And when she first heard me talk about complexity theory and Zen Buddhism at the Zendo, which is uh, what the book is about in part, and part of what I uh, spoke about last month, I talked, she recalled very clearly how I said that we had science telling us that this is the true nature of reality, and that we had spiritual traditions telling us that this was the true nature of reality, and how can there be two true natures of reality if there's only one reality? And 
my work to some extent for the last two decades has been about showing that those are not two separate views, they're one view. And part of that, um, as I discussed last time, is going into different spiritual traditions to see what they can contribute to a spiritual, metaphysical, contemplative-based view of reality that complements our scientific and Western philosophical views and creating some sort of mosaic out of those different traditions. And the ones I talk about in the book and talked about uh, in my last talk were Buddhism, shocking, Jewish mysticism, which is sort of where I hail from, um, Vedanta, uh, one of the Vedic traditions, and Kashmiri Shaivism, which is also a Vedic tradition, though downstream a bit more. And that these presented complementary views that when you fit them together, suddenly meet the science and the, the Western philosophy in a comfortable way. Um, but that got me thinking also about the notion that we often have religions sort of juxtaposed against each other. And a lot of the practice of my life has been um, working with insights I'm getting from different perspectives. And this got me thinking about how that's evolved um, in 35 years now of Zen practice. And this is something Kaku and I often discussed because he came from um, a very professional practice of Christianity. He was a pastor. Um, for decades, and yet was a Zen teacher. And through the decades of us talking about this stuff, our views sort of shifted. When I first came to Zen practice, it was because I had discovered Jewish mysticism. And as a middle-class um, New England gay Jewish firstborn American uh, who didn't really know Hebrew, <laughs> except to read it, but I couldn't understand it, um, and had never been to yeshiva and didn't start studying anything like Talmud until I was in college, um, Jewish mysticism was a closed door. And there were strains of Jewish practice that were developing in the 70s, because I'm that old, um, in particular Jewish renewal, that seemed too untraditional for me to be comfortable with. Uh, in general, I tend to be a traditionalist, though I may not come over that way. And so I was hungry for something I had no ability to reach. And uh, in college, a friend of mine gave me a book called The Three Pillars of Zen by Roshi Philip Kaplow, which I became so enthusiastic about that my friends started calling it The Throw Pillows of Zen because I kept giving it to people thinking this was like the key to everything. Uh, and for me, what it gave me was an awareness that I could have a meditation practice that could maybe, the, the enlightenment stories he told, the enlightenment reports he told in there were similar to things I had read in Jewish mystical texts from the medieval era. And I thought, well, here's a meditative practice I can have access to. And since it's Zen, there's no real God thing going on there. It can just sort of like, I can, you know, there's a thing on the altar, but I don't have to notice it when I'm bowing. Um, and it seemed to be a comfortable way to get at the Jewish mystical stuff I couldn't get in the Jewish tradition. But I still was wholly centered on Jewish practice. And 
Um, and this got me into trouble on occasion, more on the Jewish side. Um, I used to give uh, divrei Torah, like sermons, at synagogue on a regular basis. And when I started Zen practice, Zen things started creeping into my uh, sermons. And, um, and some of the rabbis called me on it because they got <laughs> what was going on. No, no, no. And when I became a Zen student and had my own rakasu, I actually had tzitzis, like on a talus, um, hanging from my rakasu for, um, on my first rakasu, which I lost. <laughs> and on my second rakasu, it was like 10 years down the line. And um, I wasn't sure whether I needed to do some sort of syncretic thing like this. Should I make my rakasu a talus? Did that make any sense? And Roshi actually said to me, I've noticed how many people start conversations with you about that that are meaningful. So yeah, maybe you should put them on again. <laughs> so on my second Rakasu, I did that. By the time that one was stolen in a weird <laughs> Zendo thing several years ago, and I got my third Rakasu, I was like, you know, I don't need Sitsis on my Rakasu anymore. And part of that reflects that the center of my spiritual practice has really shifted to Zen. This, the Jewish stuff is still going on um, in a variety of ways, but um, this practice has become the foundation I stand on, the pillar I lean against, um, and the, the framework that allows me to go look at other practices and see how they might contribute, how they can illuminate things for me that um, so far Zen practice hasn't done necessarily directly or intuitively, but I'll get some meaning from some other perspective and it comes round and feeds back in. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about this is I feel like well, another thing I've been contemplating lately, just finishing the book, it's sort of a, a lifetime of practice has poured into this little thing. Um, and how much has changed during that time. When I came to Zen practice, um, almost everyone I met was a lapsed Jew or a lapsed Christian of one sort or another. And in fact, the fact that I was still an observant Jew was an affront to some people. They got really angry with me that I would, why would you hang on to that? You, know, you should let it go. Um, but it seems to me the world has changed now and people aren't coming in with one background that they're reacting against and choosing another. There's maybe because it's the internet, maybe it's because there are so many more billions of people on the planet and we're all meeting each other, um, that people are coming in with more kaleidoscopic backgrounds or they're encountering stuff in a more kaleidoscopic way, which is very different. Than, than how it was when I was younger and I was trying to find my way in Zen practice, but had these other interests or this particular other interest. And what I learned in doing the, the work that's gone into the book is that these are just also other forms of skillful means. Um, and so I wanted to go through what I skimmed over the last time in a slightly slightly deeper way, um, because I think in one way or another, it might be interesting or useful for, for some of you, or all of you, or just me to get out of my system again. Um, 
part of what what we're dealing with when we have when we're encountering contemplative traditions of different cultures is that often what's being asked of the contemplative practice is a different question and what question you ask of your experiences in contemplation in zazen conditions to some extent what you see and what metaphors you might come up with to describe it um, so in Buddhism, the question is really clear. The questions are really clear. What are the causes of suffering? Is there a way to end suffering? What are the practices that facilitate the end of suffering? It's a very pragmatic sort of thing. And I suppose in, in some measure, that's what um, deepened my attachment is as I became an adult, um, in my 20s and found Zen practice in my 30s, it was the AIDS era and suffering and loss was everywhere. That became the urgent question. It was no longer, the urgent question of my youth was, you know, things like the Holocaust. <laughs> and also how do you square quantum physics with the Genesis story? Those were my big questions then. Um, the immediate questions in my 30s when Zen practice landed in my lap or I landed in its lap or in Roshi's lap, <laughs> more specifically, um, were really about suffering. And so we find in the, the fruits of contemplative practice are awareness of the emptiness of inherent existence, that things, nothing in the universe has inherent existence everything is merely a phenomenon that changes moment to moment and if there's nothing if everything is changing moment to moment nothing you could be afraid of will be the same thing a moment later nothing you can desire will be the same thing a moment later even you are not the same thing a moment later if everything is all just process if everything is all boundless, if everything is impermanent and um, evanescent, then what happens to your suffering? Now, that's a philosophical stance that is kind of useless <laughs> to me. It's like, oh, everything's one, so you should be okay with everything. No, but the point of contemplative practice is that you, if reaching into your mind, into your being, you have an experience of these things, not just the intellectual idea that somewhere as we sink into our zazen, we meet these things as true natures of reality um, to varying or lesser degrees. And you may have a deep experience of it one day. And I thought it was like a trajectory that, you know, you're on an, you're taxiing on the runway and eventually you have a little Kensho experience and there's a lift off and then whoa, whoa, whoa. Full enlightenment is not the way. It's like, okay, hmm. disillusions, <laughs> let it go. Um, but things appear and they change you when that happens. The question in Jewish mysticism is completely different. The question for the Jewish mystics is how did God create the world in the moment of creation? And how is the world sustained and recreated in every moment? Art Green, who's um, an important rabbi, came to some extent out of the Jewish renewal movement, um, but a great scholar and academic as well, and a, a great scholar of mysticism, as well as being a mystic, talks now about creation itself is revelation. 
and revelation is continual because the recreation of the universe in every moment is revelation. Um, which is sort of something I was kind of groping for a long time ago, and it, it surprised me to find out that he's being that specific about it now. So in their contemplative practice, they were looking deep within for where their mind, small m, their consciousness, small c, touched into something bigger, big mind, big consciousness, and as I discussed last time, the reason I was talking about all this stuff last time in the first place was in common, both of these traditions talk about the luminosity of what is encountered in the depths of one's mind, um, which is all about what our study text this ongo has been about, that luminosity of that pure awareness of awareness. In uh, Jewish mysticism, mysticism, it's called the Ein Sof, uh, without end meaning infinite. Um, and there are different ways to map how existence comes out of that. One of them is called Four Worlds Kabbalah. And um, <clears throat> this was taught me, to me by the founder of Jewish Renewal, Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, um, who at that point was 83 years old and um, taught me how to use Zoom in order to teach me about 15th century Jewish mysticism. And I like, he had to send me to go get a headphone and all this stuff. And so there I am with Reb Zalman talking on my first Zoom call. Um, and there, the Ein Sof emanates a world called Atzilut, that means the world of emanation. And to me, that's very much exactly like what the science tells us if one takes consciousness as the ground of being, which I do, um, that it emanates space time. And in emanating space-time, it, it emanates the beginnings of matter and energy. Atzilut generates Bria, creation, something out of nothing. This is the moment of Breshit in the beginning of the book of Genesis. That stuff turns into a quantum foam that bubbles up into subatomic particles that didn't exist until this stuff bubbled up. And they don't come from smaller things. They just appear out of this stuff. So it's a creation out of nothing. The next stage is uh, Yitzirah, which is formation. And um, that maps really easily to the science of, oh, particles are forming atoms, atoms are forming molecules. And out of that emerges the world of Asiyah, the world of doing, of action, this world that we have, the relative world. And some of you who may have read or, or things about Jewish mysticism have heard about the Tree of Life and the Ten Svirot. Those map in a similar fashion to here. Um, though those interestingly start to bring in a concept of male and female, that the duality of masculine and feminine is one of the first dualities to emerge from this. Um, which as a gay kid made me nervous because it was like, oh God, are we going to have to have heterosexual metaphors now that are going to like be central to this? So I stayed away from that for a long time. I got over that eventually too. In Vedanta, they specifically are interested in the question of 
we talk about the absolute and the relative in our Zen practice, and we talk about non-duality. One of my favorite pieces of liturgy, I just really float in it, um, whenever we get the chance to recite it, is the identity of relative and absolute sutra. And what we do in Zen practice, it's a little bit different in, in other Tibetan forms, and maybe it's there in Zen too, but in our Zen practices, I've experienced it, our way of getting at non-duality is by going back and forth from the absolute to the relative, trying to grasp one and grasping one, you realize you missed the other. So you go and grasp that and you miss the other one. And koan practice for me is in part developing this flexibility that you can't see both at the same time. You can't hold both at the same time. And if you hold on to one, you're missing the other. But one isn't privileged. The absolute isn't better than the relative, like two arrows meeting in midair, like a box in its lid. Without the box, the lid is not a lid. Without the lid, the box is not a box. It takes them together. So we're not getting at the nuts and bolts of uh, non-duality, but in Advaita Vedanta, it literally means non-dual. They want to know what is that? And they explore it in great detail in a way that I, I don't think um, I've experienced it in our Zen practice. And what they're talking about is very akin to what we talk about in Western science. Is there a subject or an object? The world of formation, the world of the relative, is the world in which there is an ob object and a subject, and they are separate from each other. That's the world in which we can do Western science. But when you get down to the quantum realm or you get down into the depths of your zazen, there is no separation between subject and object. And that's the, room, the, the world of the non-dual. If there's no subject-object split, you can't observe things like light and dark. There's the potential for light and dark. There's the potential for light being a wave or a particle. There's the potential for life and death. But there is no life and death. There is no wave and particle. There is no light and dark because they're all just potentials. And so that's what Advaita Vedanta explores in greater depth. And for me, hearing it put that way allowed me to come back to the identity of relative and absolute in a way that was slightly different um, and more nuanced than what I was developing on my own from out of my own practice or from trying to understand Dogen for that, for that matter. It was a language I could understand a little bit more clearly. Um, in Kashmiri Shaivism, they go into the depths of how does one transform into the other? And that's what I talked about, I, I focused on in my last talk. It's the way in which they sort of, the subject objects shimmy apart from each other and finally develop a little distance. And since distance requires time and space, that's how you have space time and that's how you have matter and energy and that's how you, the universe comes into existence. It's very similar to the Atsilut thing in the Jewish mysticism. And so we get this sort of mosaic that seems to fit well. Um, and I think all of this, rather than challenging my Zen spirit, has sort of, um, has enriched it. And um, 
allowed me to have better conversations about it. Uh, I heard Roshi say once that um, what she found with students who practice koans is that they had a, um, it increased their ability to talk about it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and this also has functioned like this for me. So what I wanna come back to though is something that surprised me because all of this is sort of me going out and searching and putting it together as a puzzle. Part of my searching during COVID oddly took me into this. Um... Oh, and I was also gonna say that in other countries, in other cultures, the, the comparative religion stuff is a little bit different. Um, speaking to Shinryu Roshi about the, um, his Sangha in Bolivia and discovering, yeah, there are a lot of Catholic, former Catholics or current Catholics there, but there's even more people involved in shamanic practice who are very connected to other realms of existence that are parallel to ours as direct experiences. And so what's that like for him encountering that as opposed to encountering Jews and, and, and Catholics and Protestants and Muslims here? Um, with Kaku, he was always, all through the years I knew him, we would get into the Christian Jewish stuff as much as where we had commonality with the Zen stuff. And I have a real aversion, I have to say, that's somewhat conditioned growing up gay and Jewish and a child of Holocaust survivors in Connecticut, that when I hear Christians talking about love, it skeeves me. Um, I hear Jews talking about loving kindness, we're fine. I hear Buddhists talking about compassion, we're fine. When I hear Christians talking about love in America, <laughs> depends who it is, but still it, it, it sort of gives me problems. And so this was an area where we could not dialogue very easily. The last time I got to see Kaku and hear his voice was on WebEx at a retreat, I think it was a Zazen Kai where he was giving uh, Daisan. And, uh, and I got to see him. And I came to him with this question I had, because I was wrestling with some of the Jewish mysticism stuff that I was now re-exploring. I got all these books during COVID and ate them and wanted to know what you do with this divinity as male or female, divinity as a reified figure, as having personality. I mean, how did he handle this as a Zen teacher um, dealing with Jesus? And he had lost a tooth recently. I think that was part of his end decline. So I was a little fixated on where's that tooth. Um, but he had this incredibly placid look and he just smiled at me. Now he always smiled at me. <laughs> we were buddies, but this was really sweet. And he just smiled at me kind of glowing faintly as I think he did a lot in those last weeks, months, couple of years. And he said, well, it's all about love. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's not my question. <laughs> my question is, how do you deal with deities with personalities and genders and you know, no, no, no. And he just like, it's just about love. And <laughs> I was like, oh Lord, what am I gonna do with this? And that was the koan he gave me. That was the last time we spoke and it's been working its way through me for the last two or three years. 
Uh, no, it's not that long. I guess year and a half. It feels that long. And lo and behold, having put it to me in his voice, with his eyes, in that particular moment, all of a sudden, there's an emotional life to what I'm encountering when I do my practice that I never expected to see there or feel, that chimes with other things in the Jewish practice that I never really let myself approach either. And suddenly, somewhere out of the far reaches of his Christian practice, which allowed him to have that language for this aspect of Zen practice, which he, I feel like, transmitted to me in some fashion, um, is changing my Zen practice. And so when I saw it was his birthday, I feel like, you know, like hobbits. Hobbits give birthday presents to other people on their birthdays. They don't receive birthday presents. And I'm still unpacking the present Kaku gave me out of the mix of what brought him to eventually become a sensei. And that's where I wanted to head with all of this as of a few hours ago. So thank you for listening. <laughs>